Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you are just joining us this summer, again, welcome. And we are partway through a series through the first part of the book of Psalms entitled, Walking with God in the Meantime, The Christian Life Through the Lens of the Psalms. And again, the Psalms are probably some of the most familiar material we have in the Bible, a collection of songs and hymns that really do give us a portrait of what it looks like to walk with God in a world where things don't always work the way that they're supposed to. And this morning we're looking at what is without a question the most familiar chapter in the book, the 23rd Psalm, the Great Shepherd's Psalm. It is nothing short of remarkable how these simple lines have captured the imagination of not only the faithful, but the faithless as well, if you will. Those who uh, have looked at and cherished the psalm but have no interest in or devotion to the God about whom it's speaking. I mean, not only is this psalm a personal favorite of many Christians, anytime you have a funeral depicted on film or in television, you can expect to hear these words being read. And that's, of course, because they are often read at real funerals. Uh, these lines have been reshaped into hymns set to music, as we just sang. They've even been sampled in pop music from Pink Floyd to Coolio. So, you have to ask, what is it about this psalm that has generated such an enduring legacy among such a diverse audience? And I think there are two things. First, I think it's because this psalm gives testimony to the vulnerability and fear, the vulnerability and fear that are common among all humans. The valley of the shadow of death. Okay. I'm not aware of any other phrase that captures quite so well all that we are afraid of, all that we fear, all of the darkness and shrouded mystery of what we fear in life. The valley where death's shadow looms over you as if he's standing just behind you. That's a powerful image. And it gives testimony to the messed up world that we live in. But second, I think this enduring legacy of this psalm can also be attributed to the adequate solution that it supplies to that dreadful valley. That there is a shepherd able to lead us safely through so that we need not be afraid. And his name is Jesus. So let's pray together as we look at this psalm this morning. God, we are so grateful that we can be honest when we see things in this world that don't make sense and that are frankly terrifying, that 
that there is sin, there is sorrow, there is sadness in this world, and yet, according to your word, there is hope. We don't have to be afraid. God, open our eyes to see what that means and to see what that looks like this morning as we look into this psalm. Give us ears to hear your voice and hearts that are ready to be transformed by your spirit as we look into your word. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there is a a certain and not so subtle irony to a psalm that describes God as a shepherd. That means humans like us are an awful lot like sheep. Weak, needy, vulnerable to predators, and perhaps worst of all, prone to wander. We're prone to wander away from the shepherd and off on our own. In fact, when Jesus was preaching throughout the, uh, the cities and villages of Judea, he saw that the people were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What happens to sheep when there's no shepherd? Where do they go for water? Who's going to protect them from danger? How will they find their way home? It's a pretty apt metaphor for life in a world where evil and sin continue to threaten us around almost every corner. From the uncertainty of things that we take for granted, so a job, or a house, or a food. Think, you know, we have a dramatic portrait of life being taken for granted in Haiti. All of a sudden, we have something, and all of a sudden, the next day, it's all gone. We take these things for granted as though they're, as though they're sure and certain. We don't have a guarantee. From the temptations to plunge ourselves into activities that might satisfy for a moment, but in reality are eating away at our souls and our relationships. There's temptations around every corner. The simple risk of loving someone, knowing that they might try to take advantage of you, they might try to manipulate you, they might try to abandon or reject you. There's risk The valley of the shadow of death is an apt metaphor for frail humans in a world run amok by sin, by disobedience to God. So, we need a shepherd. We need a shepherd. And that's exactly what Psalm 23 says about God. He is our shepherd, and he deserves our trust, and will supply all that we need to navigate through the fears and dangers of this fallen world. God is our shepherd, he deserves our trust, and he will supply all that we need to navigate through the fears and dangers of this fallen world. And yet we need to clarify the phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is not original to the Gospels of Matthew and Mark. That was a common phrase used in the Old Testament to describe the failure of a particular king or leader in how he ruled his people. Because kings in the Old Testament, and even in the broader ancient world, were often given the charge to be shepherds. They were to be shepherds of their people. For instance, David was taken, author of the psalm, David was taken from among the flocks, real sheep, to be, quote, shepherd of my people Israel and prince over them. In 2 Samuel 5, the king is to be a shepherd. We see it also with God in Psalm 80, verse 1. Hear us, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, 
you who sit enthroned between the cherubim shine forth. So God's a shepherd sitting on a throne. So the imagery of shepherding is tied very closely to the office and function of king or leader in the Old Testament. To be a king was to be called to be a shepherd. They go hand in hand. And that's actually why we see a shift in the imagery in this very psalm, in Psalm 23. We start out in the pasture, verses 1 through 4. You know, green pastures, quiet waters, and so on. But we end up in the palace, in verses 5 through 6, at a victory feast, an overflowing cup, anointing with oil. That's because God our King is our shepherd, who expects his human kings to act like shepherds. And when they fail, the people become like sheep without a shepherd. As in 1 Kings 22, when Ahab abdicated his role so that, quote, all Israel was scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd, 1 Kings 22. Or as with the failure of the elders of Israel, when the Lord says through Ezekiel, my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. And because shepherds have not searched for the sheep, but shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, Ezekiel 34, 8. So kings are supposed to be good shepherds, and human kings sometimes fail. But God, and here's the point of the psalm, God is a good shepherd. God is a faithful shepherd. He's a king who takes care of his people, and he does so preeminently by sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be our good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep in order to provide for us, to protect us, and to bring us safely home. In fact, that's how this psalm is organized around those three themes. It's a portrait of provision in verses 1 through 3, of protection in verse 4, and a portrait of a king who is able to bring us safely home in verses 5 through 6. So first, provision. A good shepherd provides for his sheep, verses 1 through 3. I'll read those again. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That is a beautiful picture of God's provision for us. The shepherd supplies everything the sheep needs for life. You need food? Here's the green pastures. You need water? Quiet waters. Rest, guidance, leading direction. And the point here and throughout all of this psalm is that if you have the shepherd, then you have everything. You have all that you need. In fact, that's really what verse 1 is saying. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, we hear that phrase, I shall not want, and it's kind of confusing for us because what it sounds like is, if God's my shepherd, then I'm not going to want anything. I'm not going to desire. I'm not going to have, you know, maybe it means I won't be greedy. I'm not going to want. Well, that's not exactly what this phrase is getting at. It, it's more to say, uh, as the NIV puts it, I shall not be in want. In other words, I shall not lack. I will have no need. 
We don't use the word want that way very often in English today, but that's the idea here. If you have the shepherd, you have no lack. You have all that you need. That's what this psalm is saying. But often, our hearts tell us something else, especially as we think about death's shadow looming. We think about ourselves and how left to ourselves, we really do have great need. We have massive need. Again, we are weak and vulnerable and unable to control even the smallest details of our lives. Whether our hearts beat another beat. It's out of our hands. Whether or not the corporation decides to go through with the layoff. Whether or not that driver runs the red light and smashes into us. We live with an illusion of control. So we think we're in control of a lot of things, but in reality, we're able to control relatively little. It's not even easy to control our own happiness. You think of something as simple as just being happy. And how our happiness goes up and down according to the circumstances of our lives. We can't even control that. And so we try to compensate for our inadequacies maybe by, by feeding our happiness. Either with food or beer or porn or something that gives me the feeling of being in control. Or we guilt, in our guilt, we try to punish ourselves for our inadequacies. You know, we deprive ourselves of basic needs. We purge ourselves of friends, of food, of whatever. Or we cut ourselves off from relationships. Or perhaps we try and escape from our inadequacies. Just pretend like they're not even there. Whether it's mindless entertainment, whether it's fantasies, where we hide through virtual relationships, online identities, we try to be someone else that we're really not. When it comes down to it, realizing how weak, how vulnerable, how inadequate we really are, even for meeting things like our basic needs, is terrifying. It terrifies us because it means that we're not in control. We're not in control. And if we're not in control, then we're vulnerable. So, we think of something like provision, my basic needs in life. And ironically then, we retreat inward into a self-dependency or a self-sufficiency. I look at the world, I see my inadequacy, and I say, okay, if it's going to be, then it's up to me, right? I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. After all, God helps those who help themselves, right? Rubbish. It's all pure rubbish. But we believe it. We believe it, and so we put the weight of our provision, of our happiness, of all of the things that we want in life on ourselves. We close our hearts toward others and our hands around our possessions because we need them for our provision. It's up to us. Or else we turn outward and we become dependent on someone or something else for our needs in life. A codependency, if you will. So we look to that person to be our shepherd and meet all of our needs. We need them, and yet we despise them because they can't do it. They keep letting us down. That's this cycle. They can't bear the weight of our burden, and frankly, neither can we. 
But ultimately, it's a weight that we weren't designed to bear and that we need not bear because God, our shepherd king, bears it for us. He deserves our trust and he supplies everything we need for navigating life in a fallen world. He reaches into this fallen world and all of our failures and all of our insufficiencies and verse 3 he restores our souls. He revitalizes our lives, giving us hope and joy and peace where there is fear and despair. Because if you have the shepherd, you have all that you need. Or another way to put it, all you need is the shepherd. He's the one who knows where the water is. He's the one who knows where the shelter is. He's the one who has the ability to protect you. So if you have the shepherd, you really do have everything that you need in life. But I need to clarify something here. This psalm does not depict God as our shepherd and the one who meets our needs because our needs are the most important thing in the world. There's a major tendency to think that, that my needs are sovereign. And they're the most important thing, and you exist, and God exists to meet them. And since you can't meet them, that's what God will do. And so we turn him into this gigantic need meter, this need giver. That is not, God is not merely a divine substitute for our human codependency. That's not what this psalm is saying here. God, our shepherd, does not meet our needs for the sake of our needs, but rather, verse 3, for the sake of his name. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We belong to God. He made us, and he made us for his purposes. And his gentle shepherd care for us in our weakness is designed to rescue us and restore us to do what he made us to do, to walk in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, to live our lives in this world in such a way as to treat God like God, to depend on him and make much of him because that brings honor to his name. He can't give us anything better than himself. And so God provides for us. He meets our needs that we might depend on him and make much of him. It's for his own name's sake. So a good shepherd provides for his sheep. That's the first point. Second, a good shepherd protects his sheep. A good shepherd protects his sheep. Verse 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Again, it's a breathtaking portrait of God's protection for his people. This very image that I suggested earlier that best captures the danger and darkness of this evil world, the valley of the shadow of death, it's through that very thing that God leads us such that we need not fear. We need not fear. If you have the shepherd, you don't have to be afraid. Okay? If you have the shepherd, you don't have to be afraid. 
And we need to notice two things about this verse. First, the reason that we're told not to be afraid in the valley or of the valley is not because evil isn't there or isn't real. So, it's not because, well, it's just not really that bad. That's not what it's saying here. The picture of the valley of the shadow of death is terrifying for a reason. Because it captures accurately how messed up this world is. It illustrates the terrifying evil of death, of exploitation, of abuse, of neglect. The fact is there's actually a lot to be afraid of in this world. And again, left to ourselves, we have an ironic tendency then to become self-protective when we look at all of that nasty stuff in the world, which doesn't change the fact of our vulnerability, but does, again, create the illusion of control. So, I will not be taken advantage of. I will not be a victim. And we live our life trying to avoid that. We put up a wall. We don't let people in very close because they might take advantage of me. They might let me down. We do it physically. We avoid certain shady characters, or we don't go to certain places. We become overprotective of ourselves and our stuff and our children. Now, safety can be wise, but it can also be an idol. And ultimately, we're unable to protect ourselves. We are vulnerable, and the world is evil. That's the reality. The reason we're told not to fear is not because evil isn't real or isn't close. Rather, second, the reason we're told not to fear is because God is with us and He is stronger than the evil and the darkness. I will not be afraid, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, those shepherd instruments used to rescue sheep in precarious places, or to beat off wolves. They comfort me. It's the presence of God that makes the difference. If you have the shepherd, you don't have to be afraid. And think about going to a zoo. How foolish is it really to stand two feet away from a man-eating lion? And think about that. But we do it, and we're not afraid of it. Why? It's not because the lion isn't powerful and couldn't bite our heads off if it wanted to. It's because the glass between me and the lion is stronger than the lion. See? It's the presence of God that makes the difference, that is our protection in the midst of an evil world. The one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 1 John 4. If you have the shepherd... You don't have to be afraid. And with the shepherd's protection, we are free to risk living in this world, even to risk loving someone. We're free to make much of God in how we live out our days. We're even free to go to dangerous places for the sake of the gospel and to let our children go to dangerous places for the sake of the gospel. Because even if this world does its worst to us, and it may, we know that it's already done even worse to Christ, and that he is with us in the midst of the pain 
and He will be faithful to deliver us out of it, if not in this world, then into His glorious presence, which is better by far. For as Jesus says in Luke 12, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who can kill the body and after that do nothing. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after killing the body has the power to throw you into hell. See, if we fear God and with reverence surrender to him as shepherd, we don't have to be afraid of this world. Because not only is our shepherd stronger than the evil in the world, Finally, he will be faithful to bring us home. A good shepherd brings his sheep home. Verses 5 and 6. So in verse 5, we now make a transition from the pastoral imagery to the royal imagery. A great feast in celebration in God's own house. Verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies... You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If we have the shepherd, we have hope. Hope of victory and hope of a warm welcome into God's presence. The imagery here is of a rich banquet hosted by God, our shepherd king. And it is lavish, a cup that's just overflowing with wine. Oil, the anointing with oil, it's a picture of rejuvenation, as in Psalm 104.15. Wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen his heart. So again, we have a picture of God's provision but it's also a picture of celebration. Notice who's in the audience for this meal. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now, if you're at war, sitting down at table for a meal with your enemies right next to you is generally not a good idea, unless they've already been conquered. And that's the picture here. God has been victorious. This is a victory meal over the forces of evil that are epitomized in the valley of the shadow of death. And yet, when we think about going into God's presence and we consider again our weakness, specifically our unworthiness, there remains a great temptation to fear. What happens if I'm brought into the king's presence and he doesn't want me? What happens if he sends me away? What if he looks on my life and into my heart and he sees how little I have made of him in this life? How I've replaced my wants and my desires and my needs with him in order to make much of myself? What if he's heard every careless word uttered from my mouth? What if he knows how I secretly think I would do a lot better job of running this world than he does and of deciding what's right and what's wrong? What if he keeps a record of every wrong? And so we fear rejection. We fear it. 
We know we don't measure up before a perfect God. And so, we try and clean up our lives, right? We're going to do a better job. I'm going to make it up. I'm going to try everything I can to make it up to God, to turn over a new leaf. And we throw ourselves at it, only to end up in one of two places. Either self-righteousness, as though we are good enough and we did it, we made it up to God and now he's obligated to accept us, we don't need his mercy, or else self-loathing. Because all we can see is the sin and that we're never going to make it up and we're never going to be good enough and all he's going to do is reject us. We can't see the mercy of God. And yet the reality is in the midst of it, he does hear every wicked word. He does see the sin in our hands and in our hearts. God does have a record and no amount of trying harder to make it up to him is going to cut it. We deserve his wrath. We are guilty of the treason of trying to knock God off of his throne and replace ourselves with him such that we deserve his holy anger. We don't deserve to be at the banquet table. We deserve to be in the dungeon. In, we deserve for death's shadow to fall because of our sinful rebellion. What do we do? We go to the shepherd. We have a faithful and good shepherd. A good shepherd who is able to bring us safely home to God. And he does so, according to the Gospel of John, by laying his life down for his rebellious sheep. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep only to take it up again. The reason that Jesus is able to carry us safely through the valley of the shadow of death is because he took death upon himself. To, to exhaust God's anger against our, our disobedience and to defeat death and evil by rising on the third day in glorious resurrection as a victorious king. He took his life up again in order to be our shepherd to share that new life with us and to bring us safely home to God. Sinners forgiven. People who deserve the dungeon invited to the banquet table of God, into God's own family, having a place at his table. And so if we trust in Jesus and place the full weight of our hope in him and his life and death and resurrection for us. We are welcomed home into God's presence. Our good shepherd will lead us there. Verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. Or better, will pursue me. That's the word, that's what the word pictures there. Pursuing me. All the days of my life. The goodness and mercy of God through Jesus Christ are the two hounds of heaven pushing along the flock, pursuing us into God's very presence. And in that presence we will dwell forevermore, enjoying God and making much of Him as His redeemed children. We will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That house of the Lord, that's the picture of the temple. 
the special, the place of God's special presence with his people. God's home. God's home. Now in heaven and waiting for Christ's return to fill up the new heavens and new earth, where, as Revelation 21 puts it, the dwelling place of God will be with men, with humans. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And listen to this. Think of the valley and listen to these words. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed. The valley has been defeated. Death is no more. We rejoice in God's victorious presence for all eternity. That's the hope we have with the shepherd. If you have the shepherd, you have hope. Hope of victory. Hope of a warm welcome into God's presence. If you have the shepherd, you don't have to be afraid. If you have the shepherd, you have everything. Let's pray. God, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your mercy. We need it so much. There's so much to fear in our lives, in our relationships, in the day-to-day -day course of this world. And yet you have mercy to provide, to protect, and to bring us safely home. What a joy. May we trust you as you deserve to be trusted. May we depend on you to give us all that we need to navigate this fallen world for the sake of your name, your glory, and our joy in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.